0: As many of us are confined all around the world, we wanted to provide you with a daily podcast in partnership with Radio Halara, emitting from Palestine. Our ambition for it is not to add to the saturation of information about the pandemic we are currently experiencing, but rather to propose a 15 minute extension of our political imaginaries every day. The concept is very simple. Every day we ask one person the same question What is for you a moment of true decolonization? The answer can be a historical moment or something they witnessed, something heroic and grandiose or rather discreet and mundane, a durable blow to the structures of colonialism or a short instant of liberation. While we are recording this podcast in privileged conditions of confinement, We keep in our thoughts the multitude of people around the world who do not share similar conditions or have no choice but to risk being affected by the pandemic because of criminal policies that have to do with neoliberalism, carceralism, or colonialism. We thank you for listening and wish you and your loved ones the very best wherever you are. Hello everyone! Today is the 15th episode of uh, A Moment of True Decolonization, our daily podcast in confinement. And our guest is uh, Melanie Yazzie, who is a citizen of the Navajo Nation, uh, as well as an assistant professor of Native American Studies and American Studies at the University of New Mexico. Uh, She's also the 2019-2020 Cultural Desk for the Red Nation, a grassroots organization committed to the liberation of indigenous people from colonialism and capitalism. And she was the co-guest editor of our uh, our 20th issue, uh, along with Nick Estes. Um, uh, The issue was called uh, Settler Colonialism in Turtle Island. And uh, you can all read it right now since we have like this two weeks of open access to to all our articles uh, I'm very I'm very glad to have Melanie uh, with us today. Uh, hello Melanie. Hi <laughs> <laughs> Hi how are you?
1: <laughs> Good hanging in there here in uh, New Mexico Tihua territory.
0: And so I mean you and Nick were of course uh, the two the two first people I thought uh, for this uh, for this series but uh, and uh, and so I'm I'm once again very happy that you accepted. Uh, Could you could you tell us what is the moment of true decolonization you wanted to share with us?
1: Sure Uh, so thank you for saying that Nick and I uh, were folks that you thought of first um, when you wanted some folks to be speaking about decolonization. Uh, Of course decolonization is something that colonized and oppressed people throughout the world, um, have configured and reconfigured for decades um, and perhaps centuries. And so we're just a part of a global tradition, um, a very vibrant diverse global tradition of decolonization and national liberation struggles. So thank you so much. Uh, so yeah, I'm speaking here from Tiwa territory, otherwise known as Albuquerque, New Mexico. Um, and as folks may or may not know, Um, The Red Nation, which is uh, an indigenous feminist and a revolutionary socialist organization that I helped to co-found in the fall of 2014, Uh, we started here in Tiwa Territory in Albuquerque in the American, the so-called American Southwest. And even though we're an international um, revolutionary organization, a lot of the work, uh, sort of the way we've cut our teeth is through local organizing on indigenous liberation issues. So there's a campaign that I wanted to talk about today uh, in response to a murder um, actually of a Dinera Navajo relative that happened four years and one week ago um, on March 27th, 2016 uh, in a reservation border town in Arizona, a border town that borders the Navajo nation. Um, a 27 year old Navajo mother, her name was L'Oreal Cinegini, Uh She was gunned down uh, by a white police officer in the reservation border town of Winslow, Arizona. Uh, if folks don't know reservation border towns are kind of notorious spaces of kind of settler colonialism and white supremacy uh, in like the larger configuration of the United States. Um, and this is, we've done a lot of work on border towns on reservation border towns. And what typically characterizes the treatment of native people in these kinds of towns is kind of a hyper anti-Indian racism. And the way that that's manifested, it's the way that police treat Native people, um, the way that Native people are corralled and contained constantly in these spaces, removed from public space, um, and it. What happens in border towns? They're kind of like a an incubator for the larger project of settler colonialism, because they're actually frontier spaces. And so, what most people think of uh, in the United States is that frontiers don't exist anymore, right? That the project of the settlement and the consolidation of the United States as a complete project from sea to shining sea, right, Um, that settler national narrative. But border towns, because they border Native nations, which are still governed according to kind of customary Native legal uh, and political authority, and where there are large numbers of Native people uh, who are citizens of these Indigenous nations, that the jurisdiction of these nations is actually completely different right? It's different than the United States. And so a border town, you literally cross the border from the Navajo Nation into Winslow, and Winslow is part of the settler jurisdiction of the United States. It's considered just a city, like a normal town um, within the United States and within the state of Arizona. Um, but because it borders the Navajo Nation, there's this friction, right? Any kind of border, any coming together, right, of two different political and legal kind of authorities in two different kind of jurisdictions, particularly in a settler society, it creates kind of um, a higher level of violence, right? Because the larger order of settler society dictates that native people should not be here, that we should be disappeared, um, right? That genocide is a project that still needs to be um, kind of carried out by the United States um, so that it can finally kind of claim indigenous lands for itself and complete the project of settler colonialism, which it has not done. And so in these reservation border towns, the police function as agents of the state, of the settler state, to really enforce that logic, um, the logic of elimination of indigenous people. And so uh, what you see in reservation border towns, Albuquerque is also a reservation border town. It's surrounded by Pueblo, Tihualan particularly. Um, and so I grew up in a border town, and so I'm very familiar with these dynamics. So... Cops, everyday citizens, particularly white citizens, um, kind of enact the the logic of of settler colonialism to contain, right, to contain indigenous presence. Because there's a lot of us in border towns because that's where we go to bank, to shop, to buy cars, um, to go out to restaurants, to eat, to sell jewelry, um, to engage in economic activity. And so our very presence is really threatening to the settler order of things that desires and imagines us to be gone, to be extinct, right, to have been disappeared. So what happened um, on March twenty seventh, 2016, is this white male cop. um, His name is Austin Shipley. He was uh, a police officer in the Winslow Police Department. He killed L'Oreal Sinajini when she was walking back from a gas station um, to the place where she was staying. And There wasn't much media coverage about it when it was happening. Um, There isn't much media coverage about police violence against native people in the United States, even though statistically we face um, the highest rates of police violence um, compared to other demographics in the country. Uh, And so when we heard about it, the, 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 the circumstances surrounding it were so egregious that we were like, we have to respond to this. The Red Nation was like, we have to respond. And so we were all based in Albuquerque. Winslow is about a three and a half hour drive down um, the interstate I-40 from Albuquerque. And so we just decided to start organizing, traveled out there a lot. And uh, I think we held, I, I forgot when it was, it was maybe days after she was killed um, by Austin Shipley. We contacted her family. Um, they lived in the Navajo Nation about an hour and a half north of Winslow. Um, we went out to spend time with her family and we decided to hold In action um, at the police station in Winslow. Uh, You know, there was a lot of public outcry um, about her murder, and we wanted justice, right? I think a lot of the work that you see, um, the organizing in the United States around uh, police murders of uh, black relatives in particular, right? There's like this mantra that we say in the streets where there's like no justice, no peace. jail racist police, sometimes we add that to it. But the no justice, no peace, right, it's about how do you, the police are supposed to enact justice, right, on behalf of kind of the racist settler state in a place like the United States. But there's like a people's justice that we never get. We never get people's justice um, when police murder and gun down our relatives in the streets um, in places like reservation border towns. And so the the hashtag for the campaign was just justice for L'Oreal, right? And so we came together uh, just a few days after she was killed Um, About almost four years ago, probably to the day we came together in Winslow in front of the police department. And there were a few hundred people there, which was very unusual. Winslow's tiny. It's a tiny little town of maybe four or 5,000 people um, right there on the interstate. And there were a lot of Native people. There were Native people who came in from other parts of the Navajo nation um, who were really upset about her murder. And we held an action. It wasn't really a rally. It was more of like a vigil or memorial, but very political. And one after another people came up and were speaking. There was a lot of crying. Um people set down candles and it lasted for hours. It was unexpected. It just unfolded organically. The news was there. The president of the Navajo Nation came. Um there were activists, longtime Red Power activists, who had started the movement, um Red Power movement in the Southwest in the seventies. Um, also came from the other side of the Navajo Nation, which is like a three hour drive also, um, to this particular action. And the reason why I'm talking about it as a moment of true decolonization is because all of the elements were there just for that moment. It was a moment, it wasn't a movement. It was just a moment where, you know, Nick talks about this in his book, Our History is the Future, that our traditions of indigenous resistance are intergenerational. And yeah, Leopold <laughs> is holding it up um, as we're looking at each other over Skype. And in that moment, it was really all of the freedom fighters, the indigenous freedom fighters from the Navajo Nation, but also in that region, came together in this weird place in Winslow, Arizona, which is just literally just like this dusty, shitty border town that nobody, it's like a pass-through town, nobody ever wants to stop there. It's insignificant, right? It's an insignificant space. And we descended upon there for hours and hours that day to share the pain, you know, to have some truth-telling moments um, about what life is like for us in these kinds of spaces, the daily racism that our people experience uh, and I remember when L'Oreal's, um, I think it was her grandma, was talking and she was crying really hard as she was talking about um, her granddaughter and what she had meant to the family, you know. Um, it, it was a clear day, the day that we we drove there. There were no clouds in the sky, blue sky. I mean, we have like 300 days of full sun a, a year in Albuquerque. So just to give folks a sense of what the, the weather is often like down here um, in the southwest and when her grandma, slowly as we were kind of talking, as the hours went by during the day and folks kept coming up and talking and kind of releasing their pain, these clouds started coming in. And then as her grandma was talking, it started to rain on us. And it was, for Navajo people, we, we have, we gender rain. Um, and so rain can be male or female, have male or female properties. And it was a female rain, it was very gentle, it was soft. And our, it was really hot that day. And every, you know, the emotions, it was very intense. And the grief, the sharing of grief was very intense um, that everyone was doing out in public that day. And so the rain almost felt, it was like a gift is basically how it felt. It was a gift, it was gentle, it felt cleansing. It was almost like what we had shared and kind of released was just being gently washed away. And we weren't having to carry that load anymore. We didn't have to carry the load of that grief because we never get justice, right? Justice, I think, is, is supposed to allow you to release grief and to feel like there's some sort of end point, right? There's some sort of end point to the violence that you experience on a regular basis. And because of the the way that settler colonialism work, it's a permanence, right? There's a permanent kind of invasion. And so the violence literally never goes away. You never get moments, even these small moments of release from the constant inundation of that violence, because that's how settler colonialism operates. That's how violence operates in a settler society, and um, I believe it was Chili Yazzie. He's a really important figure in the history of Navajo resistance and red power in the region. He got up after her grandma was speaking, and he, he said, you know, he was the one who said out loud, he's like, you know, that rain that just came, that was a female rain, that was a cleansing rain. And it wasn't too long after, you know, that rain came and kind of cleansed us and kind of carried away the grief that was shared. Uh, so the cops had put up a barricade. Um, I don't know if folks who are listening are familiar with this, but in the U.S., uh, there's been a... A pattern of containing protests, um, particularly during the Trump era where they create quote-unquote free speech zones. And so you're literally, um, they put up barricades and cones and like caution tape and you're only in pro- certain kinds of protests, you're only allowed to be in that corral. Basically, they corral you and then if you leave the free speech zone, then you can be arrested and like felonies can be dropped on you for disturbing the peace or other kinds of things, right? It's just like a bullshit method of trying to Um, trying to stop people from protesting, basically, or gathering in large numbers. And so the police had set up a free speech barricade (laughs) and a containment zone for us around the police station. And it was a very, it was an interesting transition. We didn't really know what to expect um, when we went out to Winslow. Uh, After the grief sharing, um, which in and of itself is a true moment of decolonization and justice, because... Again, in these spaces, Native people, we're in public because we have to be to shop, you know, um, to go to restaurants. But in the United States, like Native people aren't supposed to be seen. We're not supposed to be heard, you know, and we're definitely not supposed to be like, obviously indigenous in public. You know, you can think about Native people through the name of a street or like a headdress that people wear on Halloween, right? The simulacra of indigeneity, but in places like border towns where we're just literally everywhere all the time living our lives, um, that's why the violence is so intense, right? It's to contain the threat of alive, kind of present indigeneity. And so we're definitely never allowed to grieve in public. You know, we're barely even allowed to like speak sometimes in public in these spaces. And so the fact that we were coming together in large numbers in this place that I don't think had ever seen this kind of gathering of Native people. And folks were saying radical things and, and crying and grieving and saying, you know, like, fuck the police. Like this had never happened in Winslow. And so it was in and of itself, that kind of memorial or that grieving was a really radical, I would say decolonial moment. But then once that kind of was released and uh, the rain, which, you know, her grandma's L'Oreal's grandma said it was her, it was L'Oreal letting us know, like she was carrying that away for us. After that moment of kind of release, people allowed, I think, their rage to kind of settle in. And in that moment, we decided to kick down the police barricades (laughs) very gently in our gentle Navajo way. um, We kicked down. I was the first person to kick down the police barricades. (laughs) And we just it was women. It was all the women and the children. It was all of the Native women and children who kicked down the police barricades. And we all had signs, right? People had just made their own signs from cardboard and the things they had at home. And we rushed to the police station. And it was about 70 or 80 people, again, mostly Native women and children. L'Oreal's family um, was kind of at the front. And we rushed to the police station. And I tell you, those cops, all of whom were men, all of them were white men, some Hispanic, were standing inside the police station. They looked scared, you know, they were staring at us. They had locked all the doors, they'd locked all the windows and they watched us as we rushed to the police station. The barricade they had created was about maybe 50 feet out from the front of the police station. And I remember the kids got there first to the door. The door was like a glass door, um, two glass doors for the entrance to the police station. And they were just pounding. They were pounding on the door and screaming and crying. And her family... Ooh, see, I'm going to get emotional. You know, her family was just her, her... The women in her family were just screaming and crying at the door of that police station. And they were just pounding on it and yelling. And I had... I had never seen that before. You know, I had never seen Native people be able to just take our own destiny, our destiny into our own hands, where we're, we're constantly terrorized, right, by the police because the police represent the state. They represent the settler state on a daily basis, like out in the streets. That's who we encounter as like the face of settler colonialism. It's usually a man. It's usually a white man, right? And so I don't know for the for those women and children to be able to go up and those men were standing inside watching they were looking we were looking at them to deliver that justice right to take that all of that grief generations of grief from that violence and just place it right back where it belonged at the doors of this fucking like settler institution it was a true moment of justice and decolonization requires justice right it requires large scale justice it requires small scale justice and we left all of our signs, we like plastered the signs up on the door and on the windows to be like, look, you need to remember this, remember this moment when we delivered justice, you know, for our relative and our sister L'Oreal. And we just like left all of the signs up there. We left all of the candles up at the police station, you know, and then we retreated and kind of wrapped up the action. Um, And I think we went out to L'Oreal's family's house that night um, what Navajo people do when someone passes is you traditionally, you keep a fire burning for four nights um, and you have night long, all night long meetings with the families where you talk about the family, you talk about your relatives. Um, and so we went out there that night. So it was like basically like almost like a 24 hour long <laughs> kind of moment, uh, moment of decolonization. But yeah, I think that delivery of justice and and laying that grief and that pain and the responsibility For the violence back where it actually belonged. We never get to do that. We just carry it in our hearts um, and we take it out on each other. And that day we got to take it out, (laughs) you know, on the settler state. And so that was one of the most beautiful moments. Um, I would say one other thing, because I've been talking for a while, is that, you know, we're like a revolutionary organization. We um, embrace political education you know we do a lot of international work um we do a lot of historical work so we need to we need to understand a lot of things there's a lot of study right involved i think in being um an indigenous liberation and revolutionary organization but i think my favorite moments um include those are those are really beautiful powerful things but i think for me my favorite moments um being an indigenous revolutionary are moments of solidarity, like true solidarity, Uh, like when we were able to raise a lot of money to cover L'Oreal's funeral costs, and when we delivered that money to her family, you know, who were just grieving, um, they didn't really know what to do, and those moments when you make those true connections with people and you support people who never get support, They like literally are just constantly struggling to live in like a racist settler ass society. And the moments when you offer them true support and you break down whatever, everyone breaks down in those moments because there's such beautiful moments of connection. And I think to be a revolutionary, to be indigenous, to be socialist, right, we do everything collectively. And we're seeing a lot of that right now. I think during the pandemic is that there's true compassion there's a true sense of wanting to support one another and it's those moments when the the connection is made that are my very favorite moments in the organizing because they're just true uh they're just honest and they're also i think truly decolonial because you know what settler colonialism and kind of capitalist social relations want is want us to be alienated want us to feel like we cannot be free right they want us to feel like we're never going to be free that we're always going to be in the chains of, of this, you know, of this system. And in those moments, we, we unshackle ourselves and we embrace each other. And so when we're engaged in those, those moments of connection and radical relationship building and kinship, those are decolonial moments because we're refusing the alienation. Um, we're refusing to die, right? We're refusing, I think, what the system is imposing on us. And so that was also something else about the Justice for L'Oreal campaign that felt truly decolonial to me. So yeah, that's what I wanted to talk about today.
0: Well, Melanie, thank you so much. It was simultaneously incredibly beautiful and incredibly powerful. And I think it represents very well. Uh, all. Uh, I mean, all this emotion is also the emotion we feel, so many of us feel when we see the work of the Red Nation. I mean, I was I was telling you much more about those feelings before we started recording but um, uh, what you what you all are doing is so 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 important and uh, and since you're talking about those uh, those moments of solidarity of uh, trying to to get everybody uh, their very basic dignifying uh, needs and everything I I should uh, I should tell listeners that there is a current uh, solidarity fund for the red nation that we can we, we will put a link on the webpage as well thanks again melanie
1: thanks for having me on thanks for listening everyone uh and thanks for pitching the solidarity fund uh just to give folks just a little bit quick background on it uh so red nation is made up of working class Native people primarily. And as folks know, the unemployment rates are growing by the day in Turtle Island. And so a lot of our comrades in the Red Nation have lost their jobs. Um, a lot of them are already living on the edge of precarity in the first place, um, experiencing like houselessness um, and, and unemployment already, just cause that's, those are the numbers that Native people experience anyway in a place like the United States. Uh, and so right now we're trying really hard to support all of our comrades in the organization to make sure You know that we survive the pandemic and that we're ready to come out fighting hard when, you know, hopefully when um, there's a global class struggle or whatever is coming at the end of this pandemic, when we can actually come back together safely in the streets. We want to make sure that we're really strong when that time comes. So, yes, please donate to the Solidarity Fund. Thank you so much.
0: That's all for today. Find us tomorrow again for a new episode as part of this daily podcast series. And if you're a subscriber to The Finam List, remember that you have access to every single article we published in the past in their online version on our website. Thank you very much and take care.